0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer here at the Washington Post. As we speak, right now, the Build Back Better Act is this much closer to being passed by the House of Representatives. And when that happens, the slog will move over to the Senate on its way, on its way to possibly becoming law, but that's not stopping Democrats and the President from championing what the legislation would do, especially when it comes to inflation. Here, I explain what the White House and Democrats are up to. White House reporter for the Washington Post, Annie Linsky. Annie, welcome back to First Look.
2: Hi, it's good to be here.
1: All right. So Democrats have rebranded the Build Back Better Act um, as something that can counter inflation concerns. The White House messaging, too, is now focused on the economy. Who's behind that pivot?
2: Look, I mean, the White House um, concern about inflation, this is one of the things that they see as an existential threat, right? Like, you know, you've had a number of crises with this administration from COVID to Afghanistan. And when you talk to senior administration officials, they will say about both of those things you know in 2 years they won't be on the minds of voters so you know to step back for a minute inflation is one of the few things that the administration officials will readily acknowledge will be a problem if it's still um, as rampant as it is right now when voters go to the um, polls. Now, they are worried about inflation as they're trying to get through trillions of dollars in new spending. And so what, what the White House is trying to do is sort of do a little political jitsu, as you pointed out this week, and try to say, look, um, some of the measures in this bill are going to help tamp down inflationary pressures. You know, And, and it's an argument that, um, some of the economic folks in the White House have been making for a while. Um, but given that um, lawmakers are using inflation now as a reason to potentially not support the bill, that's why they have decided to switch and try to say that, look, you know, some of the things in this measure are gonna keep costs down for families and that will reduce some of the inflationary pressure.
1: All right, let's talk more about that because, I mean, let's get real here, Annie. It, inflation isn't something an American president has a lot of control over, but it it remains a key concern for for Americans as prices continue to go up, most visibly at the at the gas pump, but also on supermarket shelves. So what specific new steps is the White House taking to tackle it? and will it make a difference? And I've also noticed th- that when administration officials are talking about build back better, they talk about how it re- will reduce costs. For, for the American
3: people.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're trying to say that, um, you know, housing costs, childcare costs, healthcare costs will go down as a result of this legislation. And th- that these are some of the kind of pocketbook issues that Americans feel, um, you know, most readily. I think one of the issues and flaws with that argument, quite frankly, is to your point that energy prices have really been driving inflation in recent weeks. And, um, you know, that puts the administration in a real bind because um, climate is really one of Biden's, you know, kind of key legacy items that he cares most about. So they are both sort of worried about inflation and trying to do things about it and I think we're going to probably see some you know there's a lot of discussion about whether there will be more supply that's brought online really in the coming days by the administration but also this you know longer term view that fossil fuel that the, the economy needs to move away from fossil fuels which would not argue for more supply so the, you know there are a lot of um cross pressures that the administration is feeling right now but I do think that right at this in this moment, the the sort of inflation hawks are having the loudest voice in the White House, and that's why they're trying to kind of like contort this legislation into an anti inflation you know message, but that's also why you're probably going to see on the horizon them stepping up action on energy costs
1: so you know the president's approval rating has taken a hit um, all throughout the summer and now going into the fall, um, the latest Quinnipiac poll this week puts the president's approval rating at 36%. Does the White House think that that's because of inflation?
2: Well, that, that cube poll that you mentioned um, is you know, definitely the lowest that we've seen the president's approval rating. Um, you know, To be fair, I think sometimes that particular polling outfit is a little bit of an outlier, but um, you have seen other polls where Biden is in his low 40s. Um, you know, the driver for that, I, I think, um, inflation is certainly one of them. I mean, it's something that you see on, on you know, in you know, it's a day-to-day life um, a thing that people notice. But there are other bigger drivers, and and one is that you know, Biden came into office with this sort of promise to restore the country to normalcy, and um, you know, we're not. We're not there yet, you know. the The country is more polarized than it it has been. It certainly feels that way. Um, and and you're, you're, you know, you're, it's not as if you know he was elected to get rid of Donald Trump, who is is not been gotten rid of. I mean, he's is sort of out in the you know doing um, rallies. He's a very strong presence and you're just, you're seeing a sort of intensification of dislike for Joe Biden. And I think inflation is part of it, but it's also, you know, has he kept this promise to to go back to normal? And we're still, you know, not in our offices and people are angry about schools. And there's a lot of residual angst that I think that is also embedded in those really bad numbers that you're seeing. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Let's talk some uh, foreign policy, foreign affairs before we go. Let's start with China, President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping met virtually this week, given the deteriorating ties between washington and, and Beijing. How substantial were those talks?
2: I mean it's a good question you um you know typically'll see some sort of um joint statement after a kind of quasi summit like that I mean given that it wasn't in person. Um, but we and we didn't see that in the end, so that was somewhat of a telltale sign that things are not, you know, um, on a, a great track. Um, the relationship with China is is Biden's, you know, biggest foreign policy um, kind of question mark, and and the biggest thing that he has to manage. Um, and there are signs that are going in opposite directions. I mean, you also saw with, you know, the the Chinese. Um, in the United States are cooperating on climate in this sort of interesting and surprising way. Um, And that was, you know, suggesting perhaps there is an ability, as the administration has said, they want to be able to cooperate in places where the nation's values align and and compete in other areas. Um, and so you've kind of seen cross currents where there is a little bit of cooperation. but you've also seen a little bit of competition too, you know, the United States saying that like the, you know diplomatically um, you know not attending the Olympics in um, uh, in, in in December, or excuse me, in in February. So I think like there certainly are, you know signs in different directions. Um, but, you know, the idea that this had to be a virtual summit, I think, is very telling. Uh, there was an opportunity for the two leaders to have met in Rome on the sidelines of the G20. If she had attended that meeting, he has decided not to leave China. Um, he, he also missed a meeting in Glasgow. Um, so, you know, it, it's hard to know that exactly what is going on behind this very complicated relationship. But it's one that we have to watch you know for every single one of these signs, because mm-hmm. it is by far the most important one that um, that exists in the world right mm-hmm. now and,
1: and <clears throat> excuse me and di- and during a meeting yesterday with um, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the President said that his administration is considering a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics in China over human rights abuses. Is there a timetable on an official announcement of that decision
2: i mean I mean that's the that's a great question I mean they are not they have not you know spelled out exactly when but I think that um, it's we know the United States is constantly looking for various points of leverage um and and this is one that they have gravitated towards I mean the the possibility of it is a, a it's a very biden-esque measure in that it doesn't it's not like a full boycott which there are many groups that have called on the United States to do I mean this, is a bit of a half measure to sort of suggest that the United States is upset with China and registering some amount of dissatisfaction without kind of going forward and fully boycotting. Um, But, you know, I I think that that's like part of the conversations that, you know, people like Jake Sullivan will be having with his counterparts and John Kerry with his counterparts, or excuse me, um, uh, Tony Blinken with his counterparts. And, you know, the idea that it's on the table right after this big you know, virtual summit with the mm-hmm. Chinese leader um, does sort of suggest that, you know, there, the conversations were very hard between Biden and Xi.
1: You know, if this, were, if this were Facebook, the relationship between the United States and China would be dubbed complicated. Exactly. <laughs> Annie Linsky, White House reporter for The Washington Post, uh, thank you for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend.
2: Thank you. You too.
1: We're gonna continue this conversation with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post where we will find my colleagues, deputy editorial page editor for the Washington Post, Ruth Marcus, and Washington Post columnist, Chuck Lane. Ruth and Chuck, welcome back to First Look.
0: Morning. Good morning,
1: Jonathan. All right, um, this is to both of you, but Ruth, I want you to go first. Uh, your reaction to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's eight hour and 32 minute, whatever that was, that pushed off the vote on Build Back Better until this morning.
0: Well, I have a suggested word, it would be tantrum. Um, Thank you for coming to me first. (laughs) I was gonna describe it as kindergarten, and this is a little bit cliche, but that is an insult to kindergartners everywhere. And I don't want the ones who are watching um, Washington Post Live to be insulted in any way. This is just, after a really dreary week um, that included um, a rebuke and censure of Paul Gosar, um, it was hard to imagine that the Republicans could diminish themselves further with this uh, McCarthy I'm gonna just keep using the word tantrum, Um, but they did, and to what end? You know where the vote is. The end was, it ended up pushing the vote over into a time when it could actually get much more um, press attention, much more television coverage at a time when people were gonna be watching. So, um, good work, Kevin McCarthy.
1: Right, that's actually a great point. Um, Chuck, your your reaction to The tantrum.
3: Well, I slept through it like most of America, but um, I would just uh, take the other side of Ruth's point in the following sense. Uh, Ruth, you, me, and Jonathan are not the audience for this speech. Uh, The audience for this speech is another America, which is the America that's worried uh, that Kevin McCarthy doesn't fight, uh, that uh, the Republicans in Congress are a bunch of softies who roll over for Nancy Pelosi, and that is the group of people this was targeted to. Uh, obviously, they probably slept through it too, uh, depending on the time zone. But it will be uh, chopped up into 30-second bites and you know sent out on YouTube and chopped up into ads and so on and so forth. So uh, you know it may be a mystery to us what he had in mind, but I think it was directed toward his own base, and that. Uh, you know, that was his agenda.
0: Chuck, well, you know, I kind you, of y- agree with you because I think it was directed um, particularly to one part of his base, which is sitting yes. in Florida and watching the whole darn thing.
1: Exactly. That was the point I was exactly about to make, Ruth, that um, Chuck, um, yeah, he's not, yeah, sure, he's talking to another America, but he's really talking to another American. And everything Kevin McCarthy does, it seems, is geared towards appeasing donald trump uh, and now there's this wrinkle about whether he did that whole thing eight hours and 32 minutes as a way of tr- trying to tamp down this notion that if the republicans take the majority uh, after the 2022 midterms that donald trump could become speaker of the house like, is that a fever you know- ruth or
3: is that go ahead chuck I was just going to say, we do know that Trump stays up late um, and, uh, you know, is, does not sleep. So you have a point there. Uh, you didn't ask me, but I do think it's a fever dream that Trump would become speaker. But but yes, I think the need to appease Trump is ever present. Mm-hmm. Ruth,
0: uh, I agree with Chuck, um, but also I think that well, two things. One is uh what is Kevin McCarthy worried about most? What Kevin McCarthy is worried about most um, after just assuming that for the moment that Republicans um, retake the majority, which I think is um, sadly a pretty safe assumption, um, is that he will get edged aside for the speakership, not by Donald Trump, I do think that's a fever dream, but by someone else. And so this was his eight and a half hour Um, audition or continuing audition after. Remember, Kevin McCarthy tangled with Donald Trump on January 6th. Um, Had a very angry phone call with him that we don't know all the details of yet, and I look forward to hearing that. Uh, But in terms of messaging and even assuming that his message was to the base at large, when you talk for eight and a half hours, that's not messaging. That's just kind of spewing everything about Your sandwich shop and your relationship with Elon Musk, and I would suggest that there's more ammunition for Democrats in there um, to use against Kevin McCarthy than there was terrific um, sound bites for Kevin McCarthy to use for Kevin McCarthy.
1: Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about some some serious things here. Well, more serious things here. Chuck, Democrats in the White House have pivoted their messaging on Build Back Better. To focus on how it would how it would counter rising inflation, what impact do you think um, the bill could really have on the uh, on inflation, but on the economy uh, in general?
3: Well, I'm unlike a lot of other people, going to tell you the <laughs> the truth is, which is I do not know, and no <laughs> one knows. Um, that there are a lot of people, you know, making these projections and seemingly very learned. Uh, authoritative statements. But first of all, we don't know ultimately what the bill will contain because it's still got to go through the Senate. And secondly, the economy is functioning in such a wacky new way with all these supply chain issues. It's very difficult to project the impact. What I can say is that I think there is a certain um, desperation, honestly, in packaging this as an anti-inflation measure, which was never what it was intended as. Um, Because they have to adjust to the new reality, which is that inflation is a big problem and it's on the top of everyone's mind. And so since what you've got is this big piece of legislation uh, pending, and it's the the one thing on on the plate, call it anti-inflationary. Who knows? Maybe it will at some level either make inflation go away or at least not make it worse. But no one can say that for sure. Ruth, your your and view on this.
0: So what I would say is, like Chuck, I don't know, but Larry Summers does, or at least he has a much better shot at knowing than I do. And what he has said and written for The Washington Post is that, number one, we should worry, and the recent news shows us that he was right months ago and we need to continue to worry about inflation. But that simultaneously, um, while I agree with Chuck that it's a reach and honestly a little bit of gaslighting, to promote this bill as an anti-inflationary measure—that's not what it was designed for. Um, but it's also wrong, as I think, as the Republicans have been claiming, and as Summers argues in uh, one of his most recent in his most recent op-ed for us, um, to say that this—that Build Back Better in, in itself is going to be inflationary or comes at the wrong time. First of all some if not all of it is paid for the CBO score was more positive than people anticipated it may actually produce more savings than CBO shows because of the uh, effect of bringing in some new tax revenue with increased IRS enforcement Um, and also many when Chuck is correct we are not clear yet on the um, fundamental uh, end components of this bill what it will look like uh, contain what it will contain when and if it ultimately passes. But nonetheless, to the extent it's things like helping people afford childcare so they can go to the workforce, that should promote growth, not spur inflation. So th- that's where I come down on it.
1: Somebody's getting a lot of messages, but Chuck, I, I, I'm going to get this on a loop of Ruth saying, Chuck is correct. <laughs> so you can you can drop that in, in, well, in some says of our Chuck meetings. Chuck is
3: correct. She says, Chuck is correct, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is true. That is true. Um,
1: Take what you let me say, shot. Well, you know, President Biden's approval rating, as I just talked uh, with Annie about in the latest Quinnipiac poll, is at an all-time low. In, in, in the Quinnipiac poll, it's 36%. And that very well may be an outlier, but his r- approval ratings are low. Um, can the Biden agenda survive inflation? The pandemic, supply chain woes, Democratic infighting. Uh, Is this something that's going to be a permanent anchor, a permanent weight on the president's agenda, or is this a momentary thing? Uh, Chuck, then, Ruth.
3: Well, look, I think most people in Washington are, at the moment, assuming they're going to lose, the Democratic Party will lose the House next year. Uh, Not just because of gerrymandering, but because of all the other issues you're talking about so the real question is in a way what this means for 2024 and there i think it, it's at least worth noting that december 2017 was the low point in donald trump's popularity rating and then once they passed their tax bill all the republicans came home and it never reached that low again now of course he didn't get reelected, but he got very close so that's a hopeful thought for democrats I just think that inflation is a presidency killer. I'm not saying anything original there, but if you look at history, presidents like Jerry Ford or Jimmy Carter who were in office when inflation was spiking and seemed to be out of control uh didn't didn't win. And that's kind of what we're looking at here. So next year when we may have a new Fed chairman or a reappointed Fed chairman and uh, there's an opportunity for the Fed to get into the act, maybe control inflation. The pandemic gets back to normal. Could be a could be a good year for Joe Biden. But I do mm-hmm. think that this problem is a huge threat to him and the party. Mm-hmm. Ruth,
0: um, I don't have a. I, isn't this time for me to say I agree with Chuck and <laughs> um, I agree <laughs> with Chuck. And I do think that my eye is really on the president's prospects or the Democratic Party's prospects or the Republican Party's prospects in 2024 because I think 20, history, um, reality, polls, everything else kind of the gerrymandering, the closeness uh, already of the congressional majorities that Democrats are clinging to all sort of bake in the cake for 2022. and. It's all. I've been in too many Washington Post politics staff meetings where we talked about how ex incumbent president couldn't possibly get reelected three years from now or two years from now. And they ended up, for the most part, getting reelected. So um, this is a bad moment for the Biden Mm -hmm. presidency. It's a little odd that it's a bad moment for the Biden presidency, because, yes, Uh, inflation is a presidency killer, but he has had, and and if Build Back Better passes, will have had a remarkable set of legislative achievements for a first-term president. So let's just watch and see if things continue to be this bad.
1: We've got less than five minutes left, but I have to get you both on um, January 6th select committee um, stuff. Two questions. Should the committee pursue criminal contempt for Mark Meadows as it did with Steve Bannon because he defied the subpoena, didn't show up for his deposition. And also, if the committee, and I asked this of Congressman Adam Schiff, who is on the select committee, should the committee subpoena Donald Trump? Chuck, you go first.
3: Well, on the first part of your question, uh, Chairman Thompson is being careful about the pursuit of Mark Meadows. Pursuing, sort of, as it were, as they say in the law, exhausting his remedies, uh, trying every means short of the subpoena and the criminal contempt to get Mark Meadows' testimony. And that's wise because Meadows is in a different posture than uh, Steve Bannon, who wasn't really even a government official when all of this was going on. Whereas Meadows was the White House chief of staff, and there there are some actual Uh, issues related to executive privilege there. So it would be, I think, imprudent to act as if there were not. So Thompson's being wise on that. We'll have to see how that plays out. I think Meadows is negotiating, at least we don't know how good of faith, but he is negotiating with the committee. Subpoena Donald Trump. Well, that would be fun. uh, But I think it would kind of tend to drag this thing out even more. Uh, And I'm concerned a little bit that by the time this committee uh, starts to gel in terms of really investigating will be into the election and it'll be over before it's really gotten anywhere. Right. Ruth.
0: So I, I have a lot of pause, as Chuck does, about pursuing to the max uh, contempt charges against Mark Meadows, because we were talking about 2024 and imagining the possibility of a Republican president, whether it's President Trump or anybody else um, in 2025. And one could imagine a Republican Congress um, with the acquiescence of a Republican president summoning former uh, Biden Chief of Staff Ron Klain to testify. And I don't think that would be good for the presidency And opening this door wide and insisting that Meadows testify about everything and turn over everything. is problematic, it should be negotiated, it should be negotiated behind closed doors and worked out as these things have been in the past. Uh, Not because it's not really, really, really important to hear from Meadows, it is, uh, but because all of these things have precedential value. Um, As to Trump, tempting, but that would be a sideshow. It would be more litigation. You never get um, really, particularly useful answers from him anyway. Let's concentrate on getting the information that really could come in close to real time and provide us the insight that we need.
1: Um, We've got probably a minute left. Uh, Real fast, Ruth, since you are the the lawyer uh, among us, did you find it significant that the attorney general left it to a grand jury to hand down the indictment of steve bannon
0: no um but i need to point out that chuck spent a year at yale law school which i think (laughs) the people at yale law school would tell you is equivalent to my three years at harvard Uh, (laughs) (laughs) not not true no uh grand juries um hand up indictments that's what they do i thought it was um appropriate for the grand jury to indict Steve Bannon. And what I have my on right now are um, arguments next week in the DC circuit about the question of executive privilege, whose privilege is it anyway, between the former president and the current president in terms of the material that's at the archives, because that's where the interesting, some of the interesting stuff is.
1: Okay, Chuck, since you went to Yale for a year, um, you got 15 seconds. In literally The answer seconds. is
3: very simple. The answer is very simple, Jonathan. I agree with Ruth. Ruth is correct.
0: <laughs> well, this we're, is great. We're not this... gonna be paired up again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely we're gonna pair you up again because this is just a momentary kumbaya. Um, Ruth, <laughs> Ruth Marcus, Chuck Lane, we gotta go. Thanks very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend.
3: Thank you, Jonathan. You too. Thanks.